passage this morning is John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked as, at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said, you, said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Awesome. Thanks, Taylor. Well, if you don't know me, my name's Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. And, uh, but this isn't my, my full-time job. This isn't my main job. I uh, work full-time at the Naval Academy here in town. And what, well, yes, right, what I do full-time at the Naval Academy is I meet with students. I meet with a variety of different students, uh, men, who are exploring what it means to know God, exploring what it means to love God. And I've met with students from all different types of spiritual demographics. I've met with Muslim students. I've met with agnostic, atheist students. I've met with students that are searching for God. I've met with students that have loved God and followed him for their entire lives. But one thing that is consistent, consistent within every student that I meet with is a desire to encounter God. And if you're in here and, and you are searching, or if you're in here and you don't believe in God, or at least you don't believe in the God of the Bible, that statement probably doesn't ring true for you. You probably think, no, that's already, that's not right. I don't desire God. I don't even believe in God. But I, I work through this thought process with my students when I meet with them, and I say, I'm going to prove to you, not the existence of God, but I'm going to prove to you that within you, sown within your very nature, is actually a desire for God. And I say, imagine, grant this hypothetically to me for a moment. There is a God that really exists. Grant that to me. He exists. And I said, now, not just that God exists, but that God is perfectly good, 100%. There's not a bad part about him. And not only does that God exist, not only is he perfectly good, but he's all loving, 100% love. He loves his people. He loves his creation. And not only does that God exist, not only 
Is that God perfectly good? Not only is he all loving, but that God desperately, desperately desires a relationship with you, specifically. And I say, if that God existed, if you knew without a doubt that that God existed, would you want a relationship with him? Would you want to encounter him? And the only reasonable answer to that question is yes. And like I said, it doesn't prove the existence of God, but what it does prove within every single one of us is that we have a desire to have a real intimate relationship with God, if there was a God. And that's mainly what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to encounter a real God. And I do want to like preface this. We, uh, we've started walking through John, and going through a book like this, it's, it's written as what's called a narrative. It's a story. And so as we go through this, what I really want us all to set ourselves into this, this framework of mind to say, I want to be a part of this story. I want to imagine, I want to think what it would be like to be there, have my feet on the sand, and encounter Jesus like the disciples are encountering him. And there's a lot to mine from these texts, and there's so many things we're not going to get to touch on today. But the main thing that we're going to be looking at is what it would be like to encounter Jesus. And then practically, how does that play into our lives now when Jesus isn't here in the flesh anymore? And uh, I was, Katie and I were talking about this beforehand. We were trying to figure out a good analogy for it. But um, every single person in here likes movies. I don't even have to ask you to raise your hands. I'm sure you do. And that's my sister. Hey, Karis. And uh, um, every single one of us loves movies. But what makes a good movie? What, what do, why do we come to watch a movie? It's not so that we can come to the conclusion or even to figure out primarily this is what the movie was about. This is what I was supposed to take away from it. That's not why we come to movies. If that was the case, we would just watch the, we would just read online what the movie was about. We'd read the synopsis. But every single one of us consistently watches movies instead of just reading the end of the movie. And we do that because we want to be pulled into it. We want to experience what the characters are experiencing. And that is what this, this, the gospel of John, this style of writing, that's Holy Scripture, this is what the purpose of it was, is to bring about emotion in us as we read about God, as we read about Jesus. I think of like, uh, I think of, I've cried two times watching movies. I'm manly enough to admit it. And I cried once with Marley and me, which everyone cries during that movie. But the other one, it completely caught me off guard. It was when I was in high school, and I was watching uh, Click, Adam Sandler movie, right? And if you've seen it, you know it's like you're expecting just like laughing the whole time. And what, I don't know what, where it came from. It says it's a comedy, but all of a sudden, Adam Sandler's whole life has sped by. At the beginning of the movie, he has two young toddler children, and he makes a mistake and it ends up essentially at the end of the movie, his children are completely grown. They've had lives of their own. They're married. They have their own children. And he's dying on a deathbed. And he's just missed it all. And what happens when I was watching that movie is I, I, was, I was a teenager. I didn't even have kids yet. And I was pulled into it. And I'm just like crying, imagining what it would have been like to be Adam Sandler in that moment. And that's what my hope is as we go into this text today is that we will allow ourselves to set ourselves into this story to imagine what it would be like to really encounter Jesus and then create within us a greater desire for that. We're going to look at three main points today. That first point, desiring God, what it means to awaken, although all of us have that desire within us, how do we awaken it to the point where it overcomes us? How do we pour fuel on that so it's a fire that just 
contain, like our whole life is about finding Jesus? How do we ignite within us that desire? That's the first point. The second point is seeing the real Jesus. Not only desiring God, not only desiring even uh, an, an American idea of Jesus, but the real Jesus, seeing the real Jesus. And the third aspect of encountering God we're going to look at is access to God. Once we have the real Jesus, once we have made him Lord of our lives, the access that that God, that Jesus gives to the God, the creator God of the universe. So with that, let's pray, and then we will jump into the text. Dear Lord, we are so thankful, so, so thankful to be here today. I'm thankful, God, and you really know, Lord, you know what you've done in my life, God, and I pray that in this moment that I will make much of you, that you will be glorified, and that we as a congregation, as the people sitting here in these seats, Lord, that we will have humble hearts, hearts ready to be transformed by your word, Lord. I pray this all in your son's name, amen. All right, so I said we're going to start with the first point, desiring God, and you can look with me in verse 35 of chapter 1. It should be on the screen behind me. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked in Jesus and at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So Andrew, last week, if you're here, he, he did an amazing job breaking down this title, the Lamb of Jesus. And so we're not really going to spend too much time today really looking again at what, is the, what does this title mean? Why did John say that? But what we are going to look at, why, why in this moment did these two disciples decide to follow Jesus? What about the title, the Lamb of God, created in them this deep desire to go and find out who Jesus is? Because what's happening here just background is this is the beginning of the church. This is the first followers of Jesus. This is the beginning of his ministry, and these are the people that are truly deciding, I am going to follow him. And so what in them created that, that desire for God, desire for Jesus? Well, it's rooted in that title, the Lamb of God, and Andrew touched on it. He, he said, gave some different ideas of what it could mean or what they possibly were thinking, but I really want to hone in one thing that he talked about last week the Lamb of God as the Passover lamb. So if you're familiar with the Passover story in Egypt, um, we're going to read it here in a moment. We'll read it, then we'll talk about it. This on the screen behind me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if that household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is really important. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat on it. They shall eat it. Do not eat of any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its, its head with its legs, its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts. And of all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. 
when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So what I really believe is happening in this moment, as, as John proclaims Jesus to be the Lamb of God, what I believe the disciples are recognizing here is they're saying, he is a hope for salvation. He is the one that will ultimately cover my sins. He is the one that will ultimately bring about protection for me, bring about salvation. But a precursor for them to recognize this, a precursor for them to desire the Lamb of God is to recognize within themselves sin. See, this isn't even a a, a biblical idea. It's, It's just rational thought that what comes from what creates desire, the birthplace of desire, is need. I experience this daily with my daughter, right, Charlotte. When she cries, it's because she needs something, right? She's either hungry or she has a diaper. And so this need that she has, this deficiency that she has, has created a desire for that need to be met. And that's what's happening here in these disciples. They know they're not perfect men. They know that they're sinful people. And because of that, they desperately desire a way to be saved. They desperately desire the lamb. And for us, in here, if you're wondering, how do I begin to create a stronger desire for God? How do I begin to create a stronger need for him? This is it, to recognize within yourself your own sin. And there's people in here that either have never, may have never recognized their sin, and there's also us in here, like me, who may have recognized my sin one day or multiple days, but day-to-day struggle to really recognize, man, I still am in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. I still need God. And so for us, if we want to think, what, how can I give birth to a desire for God? How can I, day in and day out, desire him more deeply than I ever have in my life? A good place to start is to recognize within yourself a deficiency, to recognize within yourself a need for a Savior. And practically, how do you do this? Well, one of the ways you do this is you pray. <laughs> Pray to God and say, how, what sins that are in my life do I need to give back to you, God? What sins in my life that I'm blind to right now do I need to recognize? And another really, really important aspect is place people in your life that will call you up, call you to a greater standard. That's why marriage is so sanctifying, right? Katie, even this morning, had to, had to be like, Carter, that wasn't the nicest thing. And so I had to, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. And in that moment, I realized, man, I am a sinful person in desperate need of a Savior. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And in these moments, when we think, how can I grow my desire for God? As you recognize sin and as you confess sin and as you ask people, hey, be in my life and, and help me understand how I can need God better God will answer that. God will answer that. So for these disciples, the recognition of sin in their lives, the recognition of the Lamb, of the need of a Savior, created them in this desire to leave their comfort and to follow Christ. But I think a natural question here is, okay, Carter, I've done that. I've recognized sin in my life, but yet I still have these encounters with God that may not be as intimate as you're talking about, that may not be as joyful as you're talking about. Why is that? Well, we get that in the next part of the text, right? Go ahead and read with me uh, in verse 37 again, the first part of 38. So the two disciples, what they've done is they've left John, they left the comfort of their teacher, and they said, I'm going to follow Jesus. But look at how they're following him. 
We don't see in the next verse that they immediately run up to Jesus and say, this is who I am, this is who you are, I desperately need you. They don't do that. What they do is they walk behind him. See, Jesus, verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them falling and said to them, what are you seeking? And I think a very, a very real problem that all of us struggle with is we want to follow Christ at a distance. Even when we recognize our need for Christ, there's still this amount within us that we say, I don't want to run right up to him yet. I want to follow him at a, at a distance. But why? Why follow him at a distance? Why do we do this? Why well, I believe a big, a big reason why is we want the ability to course correct, right? We want to kind of follow him at a distance, see what he's about from a distance, and then if he makes a turn that we don't want to make, we could easily just go the other way. We want a semblance. We want some aspect of control still in our own lives. And so we follow Christ at a distance. But guys, this, you can't have both. You can't follow Christ at a distance and expect an intimate relationship with him. What Christ calls for us to do is walk step in step with him, to go wherever he goes, to make him completely Lord of our lives. He's not content with just an Instagram tagline, Jesus girl, or a bumper sticker that says John 3.16. That's not the extent of following Jesus that will create within you a greater intimacy for him. He wants you to be intimately known by him, to walk step with step with him. But one of the reasons we're afraid to do this is we just, we don't know where he's going to go. We don't know where he's going to go. Where is he going to lead us? What if he leads me into a place that's way too difficult? What if he leads me into persecution? What if he leads me into heartache? What if he leads me into shame? What if he leads me somewhere where I just can't possibly follow? We see this uh, in Luke 22. It's such a, an amazing passage. Peter, we're going to see him later in this passage. But this is after Jesus' ministry. This is after years of walking with Jesus, and we see Peter fall at a distance instead. Read with me. Luke 22, verse 54. Then they seized him, talking about Jesus, and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was falling at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man, this, this man also was with him. But Peter, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. To follow Christ in this moment was far too much for Peter. He knew what was happening now to Christ. He knew the suffering Christ was going to endure, and he didn't want to follow that. He didn't want to walk in step with Jesus anymore. But guys, the God of the Bible, when we give our lives to him, when we say, I, I'm yours, whatever you ask me, I'm yours, that's what he wants from us. He doesn't want a passing glance. He wants to be Lord of your life. When we, uh, Katie and I were in college, we went to India on a mission trip for like 15 days and I'll never forget this story the missionary was telling me there. He, I was sitting with him, and I asked him, what, what is it like to evangelize? What is it like to 
talk to people about Christ here to try to make disciples. And he said, I met with this man for two years. For two years, we met weekly, and I told him about Christ. I told him everything about him. And he pondered him, and he thought of him, and he asked questions, and he considered him for years and years and years. And then finally, he said to me, I'm ready. I'm ready to accept Jesus into my life. I am ready for him to, uh, to take my sin away. And of course, the missionary was ecstatic and so, so happy. And the next week, the missionary goes to this man's house, and he walks in, and he's just heartbroken. Because in this man's house were about 40 different little cubicles with all of his gods. He's like, did you forget to clean up? What's going on here? I thought you accepted Jesus. And he said, I did. He's right over here in this other room. I got his own cubicle. I, I'm, I'm his. He, he's my God. And he said, that's not, that's not how it works. You can't have all these other gods still. Jesus is your God. And that always stuck with me because this man, he was like more than happy to say, yeah, there's a lot of great things about Jesus, but he wasn't ready to, to throw out everything in his house for him. He wasn't ready to make him lord over all the other gods in his life. And that's us. That's us. So often in our lives, we say, yes, I want Jesus, but I want to follow him at a distance. I want to be able to hold on to the other smaller idols in my life rather than make you lord of everything. But praise God that he is not a God that is content with letting us walk out of the distance. Look with me in verse 38 again. So they're following him at a distance, and Jesus turned, and he saw them falling, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? This is how the God of the Bible operates. You might think in your life, I can for a while have both. I can have God, I can, I can say I'm, following, I'm, fo- I'm a follower of Jesus, but I can hold on to all these other aspects of my life, but it's not going to work like that. The God of the Bible is a God that pursues us. And in this moment, he turns to these disciples that are following him sheepishly, and he says, what are you seeking? What do you want from me? And it's, and it's kind of a, a beautiful instance, right? They, they give him like a pretty good answer. Oh, where are you staying? And he says something that's so vital. He says to them, come and see. And at first glance, it looks like Jesus is talking about where he's staying, right? Oh, come and you see where I'm staying. But you find out Jesus didn't want to bring them to his house to show them it and then say, well, have a good day. And then he walked in. As we continue the story, you see that Jesus invited them into his dwelling place. So when we decide to follow Jesus and when we get close to him, he's going to invite us into an intimate, intimate relationship with him. So what does it, what does it look like for us to, to come and see What does it look like for us to really, really respond to that call of Christ? Come and see who I am. Come and see the real me. Well, I think for some of us, and we uh, we think I'm going to come to God for a lot of a lot of the gifts of following God, right? That's kind of in his answer to what are you seeking? Some of us come to God because we want our own righteousness. Some of us come to God because that's what our parents want. Some of us come to God because that's what our friends are doing or whatever the reason is. But at the core, the core reason, the reason Jesus is giving, hey, this is what you're seeking. The answer he's giving to them right here is he's saying, you're coming to, you're coming to me for me. You follow me for me. 
It's the same idea with a marriage, right? I didn't marry Katie for the gifts of marriage, not primarily. Of course I wanted children. Of course I wanted the the American cookie-cutter lifestyle where I could say, this is my wife. But the real reason, the real reason you get married, the real reason I married Katie was for Katie. And Christ is saying, the reason you're following me, what you're really seeking is me. Come and see who I am. Come and see how close you can be with the God of the universe. And there's something so amazing that I kind of realized as I was, I was walking through this. Beginning of John, this is the first chapter of John, Christ invites the disciples into his dwelling place, right? He says, come and dwell with me. Come and see what I'm about. Come and see who you're following. And then near the end of this, in John 15, when Jesus is talking to his, these very same disciples, and he's telling them, I'm not going to be here forever. Not in the flesh. What he ends up saying to them is, he says, not only did I originally invite you to dwell with me, but now I'm going to make my dwelling place in you. That is the extent of the intimacy that the God of the Bible offers us. Yes, it's intimate to abide with someone, right? You're probably more intimate with your roommate than someone else at college. It's intimate when you're married and you abide in the same place. And so what the disciples experienced here is that they had an intimate relationship with Christ as they abided with him. But Christ says, this isn't even the extent of it. One day, I'm going to make the very place I dwell within you. That is the extent of the intimacy that we have with Christ. And and what does this intimacy with Christ do? What completely transforms us? It completely transforms us, which we're about to get to in the narrative. But I think there's a fair question as I'm standing up here as well. This is all good, Carter. It's cool that these disciples had this intimate relationship with Christ when they were experiencing him, but he's not here in the flesh for me. I can't go sit at the feet of Jesus. I can't be that close to him. So what about me right now? How can I experience him in this transformative way? Something I, I walk through with a lot of the guys who've been sitting in here, I walk through with them is, is the story of Martha and Mary in Luke 10. And for me, when I got to college, I was still very much trying to figure out what does is, what is a relationship with Christ look like? See, I, I had figured I believe this, I know it's true, without a doubt, but I didn't really have this joyful, intimate relationship with Christ. And this passage absolutely changed my life. Because it, it gave me a framework of how I can be with Christ. And in this story, we're not going to look at it, I'll just tell you, but Mary, within the story, Jesus is here in their house, and she, it says, and Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. I just think of Mary being wide-eyed before Christ. And although we don't get a glimpse in this story of what the disciples were doing, this is probably very similar. They were sitting at his feet and listening to his teaching. But how do we do this? How do we do this now in America, thousands of years later? Well, we need to be near Christ. And how are we near Christ when his body isn't here? We look at what the gospel says about his body. Paul says to the Corinthian church that we as a church are his body now. Christ says to the Ephesians and to, in, his church, in his letter to the Romans, he's, the author of Hebrews says it too, that the church, the body of believers, are Christ's body now. So if you want to know what it feels like to intimately know Christ in the same way that these disciples did, be intimately known by the body of Christ. Know the people within this church that we're sitting with. Be involved with the other believers. 
Let them sit with you when you're burdened and when you're heartbreak and when you're grieving, and then also rejoice with them as they rejoice their own joy in Christ. To be near Christ as Mary was near Christ, to be near Christ as these disciples were near Christ, means to be intimately involved with the church, intimately involved with God's people. And then there's the second part of what, what Mary did, right? She was sitting at the Lord's feet, she was near him, but she was listening to his teaching. And this is something that we talk about all the time, and you've heard it your whole life if you're a Christian, but it's, it's vital. It's vital. How do we listen to the Lord's teaching when his literal voice isn't here for us now, when we can't actually hear him? We go to his word, right? This is the most transformative text that has ever been written. It's not like any other literature or any other text you've ever written, read. It's absolutely transformative. And so as we want to be acquainted, as we want to know Christ in the same way that the disciples knew Christ, we must know his word. We must truly know it. And like I said, it's this intimacy with Christ is transformative, right? Look with me in 39 to 42. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So like I said, there's so much to dig in with this text. We're not going to get to all of it. But I do want to focus on the demeanor of these disciples. We started this story with them sheepishly following Jesus, and now we have them like shot out of a cannon after being with Jesus. See, when we know Jesus, when we truly know him, we will be transformed. We will want to tell everyone about them. And again, this isn't even just, this isn't a biblical, even just a biblical idea. Everything in us, when we enjoy something, when we truly have joy in something, the, the thing that brings completion to it is sharing it with someone else. Think about it. The Eagles are 11-1. They're the best team in football. They're going to win the Super Bowl. And I'm sure you've heard me talk about it. <laughs> right? And what happens when we enjoy something, when there's something amazing that happens to us, the very next thing we want to do is tell someone about it. And so for these disciples, they experience Jesus in this intimate way, and the first thing they want to do is run off and tell the people that are closest to them. And this is important for us to ask, is this me? And this is me too. I'm convicted. I say this all the time. Writing sermons is the most convicting thing. Because I don't do this. I don't do it well enough. Christ is by far the most joyous thing in my life, without a doubt. But yet I spend my time talking about such lesser joys. When we truly go and see Christ, we will leave differently, just as these disciples did. But what's amazing, we've, we've talked about amazing things of God, but there's something even greater as we continue to work through this text and that's the access that God offers us. That's the access that a relationship with Jesus offers us to God. Read with me in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, 
We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Now, this isn't directly with the theme of the message that I'm talking about, but it's, it's, a, really, it's a juicy rabbit to, tra- to chase, okay? So many, of it, so many of us in here, we desire to make disciples. I know this. I know a lot of, us, a lot of you guys intimately. We say, I do actually want to go tell people about Jesus. And this is a conversation I have with a lot of mids where they say, yeah, I do want to go and, and do this. I want to tell people about God. I want to talk to them about it, but I'm so fearful of not having the answers. I'm so fearful of not really having, they're going to ask me a question I'm not going to know the answer to. And to, in all honesty, that's me all the time. I do this for a full-time ministry, and I often do not have the answers. And what we have here is a beautiful little direction from Philip of how to do this, right? Philip has experienced Jesus. He's decided, I need to go tell someone about this. He tells Nathaniel, and Nathaniel asks him a good question, right? He asks him a question, and what does Philip do? Does he try to come up with an answer? Does he leave his faith? No. What Philip does, he says, I don't know. Come and see. You have to go see this also. See, that's what we should do as we seek to make disciples, to not go and evangelize, to not disciple because we're fearful of not having the answers is the wrong, wrong way to think about it. And what I, I do this, I do this in my ministry. I just say, I have no idea the answer to that question. That's a great question. Let's explore it together. Let's figure this out together. And see, I can confidently go, even though I know I'm not going to have all the answers, because I know that this book never returns void. I'm playing with a loaded hand. People can come with answers that I might not have the answer for, or questions that I might not have the answer for in the moment, but I know there is an answer to it. And I know that if they experience Christ in the way I experience Christ, that one of two things will happen. Either they get the answer they're looking for, or they realize the question doesn't matter. I told you as a side note, but back to the text. And we see uh, in verse, so he asked, Nathaniel asked the question, can anything good to come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will have heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. I said this last point was about access to God, right? And as I walk through my life and my relationship with Christ, every single moment that I get to know him more results in greater joy. Whatever, whatever the object of our knowledge is in this life, if it's a good thing, the more you know about it, the greater joy, the greater affection for it comes out in the other end, right? If you have a great spouse, the more that you know that spouse blows away your affection from when you first met her. And think about this now in the, in the concept of God. This is a perfect, holy God. And the more that we begin to know him, the more that we understand about him, the more that we experience him, the other side of that is unending joy. And in my life, as I got to know more of God, that has been the case. And this is just one additional beautiful aspect 
of a relationship with Jesus. See, when, when Jesus answers him, and Nathaniel, he kind of he busts out into this amazing praise of Jesus. He's like, wow, look at how amazing you are. You knew this about me. You knew these intimate things about me that you shouldn't know. And Jesus answers him, and he says, right, at the end of the verse, he says, heaven will be open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Nathaniel, what these Jewish disciples would have understood in this moment is that he was referencing Jacob 28, or he was referencing Genesis 28, which is Jacob's dream. It's going to be the text behind me. It's, it's important to understand this aspect of it. it. starts in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Ram. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. And at the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord, God, stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. See, Jesus isn't simply telling Nathaniel in this moment that he will see amazing things like angels descending and ascending. What he's saying is, I am the gate. I am the gate to heaven. I am the way that you will be reconciled to the God that created you. I am the way that you will begin to have a greater intimacy with God than you've ever had before. He's saying, I am the way that you again will gain access to God. The access that was lost in the garden, right? No other creation was created like us, like humans. No other creation, everything else God spoke into existence. But what did God do? He formed us, and then he breathed life into our nostrils. That's intimate. If you guys walked into a room and I was breathing into someone's nostrils, you'd be like, this is a weird moment. <laughs> it's an intimate aspect of God's relationship with us. And not only that, no other creatures walked with God in the cool of the day. But Genesis says, we walked with God in the cool of the day. And then our sin broke that. It broke that access to God. We were cast out of the garden. And it wasn't until this moment, until God himself came incarnate to the earth to once again give us full access back to God. And so what Jesus is saying here is, Nathan, you don't get it yet. You don't get it. What I'm going to do for you is greater than what you can even conceive of. And for us, part of the problem is we, do, we recognize our sin, and that makes us feel so shameful to go to God again. Dealt this, I've dealt with this throughout my entire life. How can I approach you, God? You're this amazing, amazing person. You're this amazing, amazing God, and I am just this lowly, lowly, lowly person. How can I possibly approach you? And at the core of the gospel, this is what Jesus has come for us to do. He's saying, I have bridged that gap, that chasm that has broken, I have restored 
access again to God. And we read it earlier today. We'll read it again because it's just so beautiful. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, the lamb with no blemish. Let us then, because of that confession, because of who Christ is, because of the death that he died for us, now let us in this day draw near to Christ, draw near to God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. See, if you've made Jesus Lord of your life, if you said, I'm walking with you wherever you go, God, whatever you ask of me, I'm yours. If you've done that, then your, that confession, that confession will make it so that you have full access to God. And the intimacy on the other end of that, it's not even fathomable. And what happens, we talked about this, and what we'll get to months down the road as we reach the end of John is the eventual death of Christ which right now we have access to God. We do, but it's, it's marred in some ways by our sin, right? It's marred in some ways by our, still, uh, our eyes that still see the shiny things of this world. But one day, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, our access to God will be, will be uninhibited, unveiled. And when we die, if we have made Christ Lord of our lives, if we said, you've got my everything, and that's what our future hope is as well. And so, like I said at the beginning, what I, what I wanted from this time is to create within us a greater desire to encounter Christ. And so if you're in here and you're flirting with the idea of God, or you're in here and you've never believed in God, This wasn't for the purpose of convincing you God exists, but it was for the purpose of convincing you, you got to figure this out. Because if he does exist, if what you've heard up here, what you've heard from other people in your life is true about God, then it's the most important thing in this world to figure out. And if you are here and you're a believer and you do follow Christ, then this is a time to reconnect and say, man, I, I want that deeper relationship with you, God. I want that deeper relationship. I want those heavy encounters with you. And this is a moment to recalibrate and say, what in my life do I need to yield back to you? What can I give to you? How can I be just with God's people? How can I be saturated in the word? How can I be with you, God, in a deeper and fuller way? How can I walk step in step with you rather than follow you from a distance? So that's my, my prayer for you guys. That's my encouragement is that this is what is offered to us in a relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we are, we are so, so thankful for you. We're thankful for this time. We're thankful for the, the just general grace that we live here, that we can worship freely, that we can go and go where we want to, as we want to, Lord. I pray now, God, for each one of us in here, that we will not be content with the things of this world anymore, but God, that you will captivate our hearts supernaturally, Lord, just change who we are from the inside out. God, I pray for each one of us for a deeper desire for you. 
Lord, I pray that, uh, I pray, God, that you would continue to work in our lives. On your son, Jesus' name, amen.